which I'd like to direct your attention this afternoon, are found in the book of Acts, chapter 4. So please take your Bibles and turn there to a very precious verse. We'll be looking at Acts, chapter 4, verse 12. And this is what Peter proclaimed to the high priest and all who are with him. That there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Lord, our great desire, without question, is that you would bring glory to Yourself. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would exalt Your Son. Spirit, that You would exalt the Son. That we would recognize in all His fullness why He is so precious to us. This doctrine would not merely be a a doctrine that we would check off in, in a system of beliefs. But it would be precious to us. That you would open our eyes to see why salvation can only be found in Christ alone and what its implications are upon our life. Accomplish that purpose, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So, we find ourselves in the book of Acts, just a few Days after Peter and the other apostles had been a part of an incredible, miraculous pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The promised Spirit that Christ said would come, came. And He came in tremendous power. And they began to speak in various tongues and preach the gospel and many were saved. And it was just days after this that Peter and John were walking through the temple grounds. And they came across a beggar who had been lame since birth. And instead of providing him with money that he asked for, he says, they say, we have something even greater. And they healed him. The text says, leaping up, he stood up and began leaping and praising God. And this this caused quite a stir because many of them had known this man since he was very young. And so Peter takes this opportunity, as any good Christian would, to preach the gospel. And it says, as he was speaking, we're told in verse 4-1, that the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And they were greatly annoyed because they were proclaiming, Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. And so they arrested Peter and John. And so the next day they drag him into court, which is really more of an inquisition than a court. You have the rulers, the elders, the priests, the high priests, the whole priestly family, in fact. And again, this is not meant to weigh the truth of what's being said It's more like an inquisition. Similar to if you were part of the the Sunday school class, very similar to what happened with Huss, John Huss, at the Council of Constance. 
They weren't asking clarity on what Huss believed. They were looking for an excuse to exterminate him if he would not recant. Very similar. And they ask one particular question. By what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, again, takes advantage of this opportunity to share the gospel yet again. Verse 10. And notice, notice how direct he is. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. And then he says in verse 12, And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So what we have here, in essence, is Peter preaching the doctrine of solus Christus. There is no other name by which we must be saved. As we sang, what this means, there is salvation in Christ alone. In Christ alone is our hope found. And the reason that salvation is exclusively found in Christ is bound up in that word, salvation. I want you to look at the point to that word in your book. Because it's our understanding of that word where this doctrine finds its critical nature. Because that word highlights the problem. Why Christ alone? Because we need to be saved. Why do we need to be saved? Saved from what? The famous Reformed preacher R.C. Sproul explained that he came to saving faith really in response, or at least partly in response to that question. Saved from what? Because as a college student, he was walking through campus and a a recently converted young man approached him and and apparently rather brashly asked, are you saved? And Sproul was taken aback by the intrusion and he responded simply with the first words that came to to his mind. Say from what? And it was that question that caught him to thinking and to dive into the word and he eventually was saved. And this is the essential question of Christianity. In other words, the essence of Christianity is bound up in how we answer that question. Saved from what? What is it that we need to be saved from? Why did Christ become man and die? Was it to save us from hell? Was it to save us from sin? Was it to save us from suffering? Was it to provide a good example? Was it to demonstrate his love? Why is it that salvation is found in no one else? Why is it that Christ alone can save us? If somebody were to ask you that question, why Christ alone? How would you answer it? Well, I want to help you answer it. That's that's the aim 
That's my aim, is to help you answer that question. And I think we have to start, again, with the problem. Sin and wrath. Our great problem is that we're sinners, and therefore God is infinitely angry at us. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Why, why is God so angry? What have we done? Well, the text says we have sinned against Him. And not only are we unrighteous, but we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So not only is God is angry... But what this is saying is we can't help but sinning. We suppress the truth. We are consumed by sin. As he says later on in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. And so together they've become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Brothers and sisters, sin is the reason our salvation can be in Christ alone. And if we don't understand sin, we will walk away from this doctrine. That's why this is not a light thing. And I'll give you examples of people who have walked away from this doctrine. And it's not because they have any issue with Christ. Because of their understanding of sin. Our salvation is completely dependent upon how we understand our sin. And it's, that is the great problem. And I think, I think the text that best illustrates this is a very well-known parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I would encourage you to turn in Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read it. And I want, you, I want you to read it along with me. And notice what it's communicating. Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. And the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For the one who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Look very carefully. The reason he was justified. 
was because of what he proclaimed. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, having seen this problem, he understood that he needed a solution, the only solution. And this is what Jesus said. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you understand that sin is the problem, you will recognize that there can be no other solution. Because if the, if the problem something else, there can be. There can be another, there can be another answer. If the problem is not sin. If the problem was failing to understand God's love, Christ didn't have to die. God made that very clear in Exodus 34. I'm a God abounding in loving kindness. If the problem was failing to understand God's sovereignty and doctrine, Jesus didn't need to die. Just send more prophets. Just send more teachers. If the problem was poverty, you just give more. If the problem was political, you just be more political. If the problem was health, we can invest money into research and pursue a career as physicians. If the problem's your spouse, you could get a divorce. But if you recognize that the problem is your sin, there is only one solution to that. Christ alone. Because none of these solutions will save you. Because they are not your real problem. And that is why a person can say, in the morning, just give me Jesus. When I come to pray, just give me Jesus. You can, you can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. Why? Because the person who says that understands they only have one major problem. And Jesus alone can solve that problem. And if we don't tell people what that problem is, if they don't understand what that problem is, they will go to hell. This man went down to his house justified. Why? Because he knew he was a sinner. The Pharisee knew about God's righteousness. The Pharisee knew about God's law. The Pharisee devoted his life to the kingdom of Israel. But he didn't understand he needed a savior from his sin. Because he thought he was righteous. And he wasn't justified. Over half a century ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor of Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church, he was the predecessor to the great preacher James Montgomery Boyce. And he would, he would preach over the radio and he gave a message 
to his CBS audience about a picture of what it would look like if Satan took control of a town in America. He said that all of the bars and the pool halls would be closed. Pornography banished. You'd have pristine streets and sidewalks would be occupied by tidy pedestrians and they would smile at one another. There would be no swearing. The kids would answer, yes, sir, or no, ma'am. And the churches would be full on Sunday. But Christ would not be preached. See, Satan doesn't mind cleanliness. Satan doesn't mind order. Satan doesn't mind health. In fact, Satan doesn't even mind a lot of doctrine. Satan just doesn't want us to consider sin and its consequences. Because that, brothers and sisters, that is what drives us to Christ. Just remember that first lie. You will not surely die. God wouldn't do that. God loves you. God God made all this garden for you. It's just a piece of fruit, Eve. Die? Are you kidding me? And ruin all this creation? Eve, just focus on what you're missing out on. Look at it. It's good for food. God made it good for food. He made it a delight to the eyes. It's desirable to make one wise. And so she took it. She ate. You will not surely die. Satan doesn't want you to understand the very real consequence of sin. He wants to distract you. And he will do so by lusts. He will do so by enticements. He will do so by any manner possible. Because he wants to keep you away from Christ. Because if you realize you need Christ, you'll run to him. Because he knows only Christ can save you from your sin. And that is why he came. Remember what it says in 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Well, that's the problem. We need salvation. And the principle is that salvation can be found in no one else. Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the way. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 3.36 also says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood needed to be shed to satisfy God's justice. Somebody needed to pay the ultimate price. 
But none of us could do it because we're all tainted with sin. Only a perfect person could pay the price that would be satisfactory. A person who had kept the whole law and never sinned. And that is exactly what Jesus did. And he suffered the punishment that we deserved. All we have, like sheep, gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ had to die on our behalf because that was the only way we could be reconciled to God. But Christ, the God-man, did die. He did die. And our sins are completely covered if we will trust in Him. And recognize, present tense, there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation. Salvation is available from your sin, from the wrath of God. We simply need to take hold of His provision by faith. Nothing more needs to be done. We just need to believe that it's sufficient. That He's paid the price. And we will be born again, no longer to be slaves of sin, but free from sin. Because through Christ we're no longer slaves to sin. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you because it's rather long, but that's exactly what he's saying. If you're saved, you're free from sin. You don't have to sin anymore. Christ saved you to free you from it. He says in Romans 6.22, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He died that we might die to sin and live. By His wounds you've been healed. You see that? We were saved from sin. Present sin. And he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. You're free. Charles Wesley's great hymn, when he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound, by sin and nature's night. And then thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon streamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. So he's talking about freedom from sin. He was saved Christ didn't just remove the wrath. He saved him from sin so that he would not sin anymore. So I think it's important now that we take some time to to, to consider why it's important to understand what we've been saved from because there are many Christians, so-called Christians, who have rejected this doctrine, Christ alone. There are many people that teach that Christ is necessary for salvation. 
But having been saved by his work, people merely just need to now try and make the world a better place. So Christ has died, but now we just need to make the world a better place. And this is known as universalism. In a homily given by Pope Francis on May 22nd, 2013, he said the following. The Lord has redeemed all of us, all of us with the blood of Christ. All of us, not just Catholics, everyone. Father, what about the atheists? Even the atheists, everyone. And this blood makes us first class children of God. We are created children in the likeness of God and the blood of Christ has redeemed us all. And we have all a duty to do good. And this commandment for everyone to do good, I think, is a beautiful path towards peace. Now I want you to recognize that what the Pope doesn't reject Christ. He rejects Christ alone. Well, how? Because he says Christ is just a means for heaven for all. But he doesn't save people from their sin. Because atheists are in continual unrepentant sin by definition. And so we have to save ourselves from sin by doing good. That's what he believes. Sure, Christ has died and he's paid for the wrath of God. But now our job is just to do the rest. So salvation is in Christ and doing good. He's rejected Christ alone. Another way Christ alone is rejected is through Christian liberalism. See, liberal theologians assert that sin is not the problem, but ignorance and pain and suffering. And this is why Albert Schweitzer, uh, one of the most prominent liberal theologians and preachers in the 19th century, he believed that ethics was synonymous with reverence for life. Ethics is how we should live. So not the Bible, but reverence for life. And this is what he wrote. Reverence for life affords me my fundamental principle of morality, namely that good consists in maintaining, assisting and enhancing life and to destroy, to harm or to hinder life is evil. And so Schweitzer, true to his convictions, devoted his life to become a medical missionary, not to preach the gospel, though but simply to heal people of their diseases because he didn't think proclaiming Christ was what people needed because Christ really was just a good example for us to follow. And he sought to be a similarly good example. He didn't believe that people needed to be saved from their sins. They just need to make better choices. So what he really believed was salvation was not found in Christ, but in education, in health care, in good deeds to bring it more close to home, my wife grew up in a church that really embraced such liberal Christianity. If it can be called, in fact, great J. Gresham Machen, the great Presbyterian preacher, wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. And the whole point of that book is liberalism is not Christianity. So he says Christianity and liberalism. So it's not, but if you want to read the book, I encourage you. It's good, solid theology. Well, my wife went to a liberal church for 16 years. We were just talking about this this morning. And she never knew why she needed Christ. He was just a good teacher, just a good example. 
And as long as people believe that the problem is just something out there, rather than in here, Christ will be no more than just a cosmic cheerleader or a good example. Because think about it. He's not necessary. Unless the problem is sin. Consider that it would be nice of a lawyer who provided food and uh, maybe a new suit for his client whose life is on trial. None of us would take issue with that. Be a very good lawyer. But if that lawyer did nothing to plead his case while his client's life is on trial, all he did was do good things, we would consider him lousily. And his conduct hardly loving. Why? Because he's not doing his job. As good as what he did was. In order for people to be saved, they need to understand their problem. Remember again, the one who went down to his house justified declared what? God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's why he was saved. That's why he was declared righteous. And the reason, the reason we treasure this doctrine of Christ alone is not just because it assures us from salvation, from God's wrath and our slavery to sin, but catch this, it's not just that we have assurance from that problem, but it gives us assurance in the ongoing fight that we have against sin. The reason we continue to treasure this is not just because we're saved from God's wrath and not just because We're set free from slavery to sin. But this is why we have ongoing assurance. And unless we know the problem, we won't. But we'll we'll look to something else. Brothers and sisters, sin remains our greatest threat. Psalm 119, 71. The psalmist said, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Why would he say it was good for him to be afflicted? I mean, I wonder what Schweitzer would say about that. It was because he understands sin is a much greater threat. He wanted to obey In warfare, lack of supplies, harsh weather, incompetent officers, those are all massive problems. And they can make a soldier's life miserable. I know from personal testimony, not from personal experience, but from personal testimony. But they are not the enemy. Incompetent officers, bad weather, they are not the enemy. If it's true that sin remains our great problem, our great enemy, then what we'd expect to see in Scripture is Jesus and the apostles continue to warn the followers of Christ about sin. I mean, if it continues to be a problem, they would, we'd expect the, the Scripture to keep warning. And that is what we see. It's exactly what we find. Hebrews 3, 10 through 14, take care, brothers, 
Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called the day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see that? Do you see how the present threat of sin is tied to a conviction of Christ alone? For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... Notice he's talking to Christians who have the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, you put to death deeds of the body, you will live. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Not waged war, but wage war. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. You see this, that since... We still have to battle sin. Christ remains precious to us. When we understand the horror of sin, Christ becomes more precious to us than everything. Why? Because, sorry about that slide. Because we realize we've been forgiven much and therefore we love much, just like the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. But those who think they're forgiven little will love little. They, we also know that He will complete His work of sanctification in us. I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. We also know that Christ continues to intercede for us. Because He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to, to God through Him. And it's because we know Christ is the reason that we can have hope in all of the promises of Scripture. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. So what does it look like when we understand this doctrine? The practice of living solus Christus. Well, the first thing I think that that we will see in our life is we will continue to fight. We We will make war on sin. Although we've been set free from sin, it's still our greatest threat and it has the potential to destroy us more than anything else in all creation. And this is why the Puritan John Owen wrote, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And why the apostle said, take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead you to fall away from God. Until we get our resurrected body, we will have to fight sin. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, we looked at it earlier. 
but I discipline my body. I'm, I'm keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul did not look on sin as a joke. It was his greatest threat. That was what his primary worry was for himself. And he didn't doubt in the least of the assurance that he had in Christ. And knowing that sin remains our great enemy means we will continue to confess our sin. I mean, many people have asked, well, why does Jesus say in the Lord's Prayer, for, forgive us our sins if we're forgiven? Because we still need to be forgiven. We still sin. Now, we're not forgiven because we ask for forgiveness, but we're forgiven because of Christ. But we still sin. We're acknowledging the real problem. It's not the request that pays for our sins, but it's our acknowledgement that sin continues to be a problem. And that's why James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. And in the context there, he's talking about people who, because of sin, have been struck with illness. So we encourage them to confess their sin. So they may be healed. We treasure Christ because he has saved us and continues to save us from our great enemy. And this is why Paul said, let anyone who loves does not love the Lord, let him be a curse. Why? Because we love the Lord. He's more precious to us than anything. And this is why we would love Christ more than father or mother, more than son or daughter, because Christ alone has saved us. We will not love Christ more than anything else, though, unless we understand the magnitude of the threat against us. Likewise, we rejoice with unspeakable joy. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We rejoice. Why? Because we have a Savior who continues to fight for us, who continues to intercede for us, who gives us confidence that even though we die, we will be saved, not because of our striving against sin, but because of what He has done. We have every reason to rejoice because He has died on our behalf. And finally, we're humbled. If we recognize the greatness of our sin and the greatness of our salvation, we will be the most humble people on the face of this earth. This is why Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And this is when he goes in and says, have this mindset that is the same mindset of Christ, who made himself nothing. If you understand what Christ did for you, you would think like Christ. 
what he's saying. And this is the posture of the tax collector who beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the sinful woman who wept at Christ's feet and where Christ said she's been forgiven much and she loved much. And this is the example we find in blind Bartimaeus who as Jesus walked before him did not just say, Jesus, heal me, but Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. He knew what his problem was. He needed mercy. And Christ alone can offer that to us. If we understand this, if we understand this doctrine of solus Christus, when our life is over, we will not boast in the great things that we have accomplished. But we will glory in Christ alone. William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. I named my second son after him. He translated the Bible in 44 languages. He had a university, and still a prominent university in India, named after him. And yet, consider his epitaph. A wretched, poor, helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. Where was his boast? Why did he call himself a wretch? When he did so many amazing things. Why did he look to Christ? Why did he cast himself on his arms? John Newton, one of the greatest hymn writers, and people say maybe the most beloved pastor in history. He's my hero. At age 82, he summed up his remarkable life with these words. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner. But Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Lord, Be merciful to us, sinners. But we know that as we cry out to you, we know that you are a great Savior. That you have saved us from the wrath of God. That there is no condemnation in Christ. That you have set us free from our slavery to sin so that we no longer have to live in it and see its destruction. And we know that you will complete, you will complete this work in us, not us, but you. And Christ, that is why we treasure you more than anything. And why we can say, when we come to die, give us Jesus. You can have all this world. 
Give me Jesus. Amen.